Today's Old Testament reading comes from Isaiah 53:5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And the New Testament reading is 1 Peter 2:13 through 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were, le- you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we have been going through the letter of 1 Peter, verse by verse, looking how Peter is calling for Christians to understand suffering and salvation in a time and in a period of exile. And just like those in Peter's day who are dealing with questions on who they are in light of persecution and suffering, uh, so to today, we can understand as the church, as the people of God in this moment, what it means to follow Christ amidst the trials we are now facing and the trials that await us. And so Peter in our text last week was finalizing his statements on what it meant to be a part of the household of God, uh, that in loving one another, they should throw away anything that would cause the body to splinter uh, and instead see themselves as uh, the chosen people of God, a royal priesthood uh, fed by his word. Why? To proclaim his greatness. So Peter here up until this point in, in this part of uh, the letter is saying, this is who you are as God's people. Uh, and, and this will help you, prepare you well to suffer well. In an age and a time where being a Christian was a dangerous proposition because this will proclaim Christ greater and greater in a world increasingly hostile to the faith. And so now we've come Uh, And this week and the next week, perhaps two of the most controversial and misunderstood passages in Peter's letter. And I hope that uh, in these next two weeks, we can put aside our modern day assumptions and bringing our own thoughts to the text and, and instead realize the context of who Peter is speaking to 
and the situation that he's speaking to because I think it gives us a window and a light to seeing these words differently. Maybe uh, from a skeptic's point of view, uh, these verses here would seem very, very uh, greatly uh, controversial. But it is my hope that during our time here today that we would actually see it as life-giving, as freeing. You see, Peter does not want to speak in some sort of vague application of how the Christian is supposed to endure suffering. Uh, His desire is so much more for broad platitudes. He wants to talk about the reality of how this is going to play specifically in day-to-day life. And the solution that he has for God's people is quite surprising. Uh, It isn't what you would think at all. And certainly not something that we would choose to do on our own. Peter's solution is saying, be submissive and endure suffering to a world that hates us. Why would he do this? Why would he say something like this? Uh, These are the questions that we will try to answer here today. So let us pray before we begin. Father, lead us in the preaching of your word to help see the sufferings of Christ and the church to follow in his footsteps. Lord, help us to rid ourselves of our need for control, of our need to be our own authority, of our need for autonomy, of our need for comfort, and instead help us to carry our cross for the sake of glorifying your Son, Jesus Christ. May your Holy Spirit speak powerfully now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start uh, by stating something, something particularly obvious. Uh, all of us are somehow, in some way, subject to an authority in our life that we must submit to in a situation that is less than ideal. Students starting school this week, you are submitting to the authority of your teachers, perhaps submitting to the bus system this week, if you have read the news regarding the Howard County School buses, uh, and you're wondering, is this the best that we can do? Many of us in the working field might have bosses or leaders that are less than ideal than what we expect out of them. Uh, We are living in a country that is subject to laws, laws that are often hard to understand, hard to submit to, and in some cases feel like those laws are a cause of suffering for many. For many of us, these frustrations lead us to ask the question, how, as Christians, do we respond to this? What does Christian love and charity and our witness speak to these issues? Why struggle in submitting to these authority. After all, since we have a heavenly home awaiting for us, wouldn't it be much better, much more easier, much more dynamic for us to overthrow, to resist? Uh, Such a line of questioning points to the same kind of wonderings that Jesus' first disciples had when he came. If Jesus was this promised Messiah, why then the disciples were wondering, is being a disciple seemingly so painful? I mean, why are we homeless? Why are we just nomads walking around? Jesus, when will you bring about your kingdom? And if Jesus died and rose again on the cross, then Jesus, why do we need to suffer any longer? If you've conquered Satan, sin, and death, what's the point of all of it? And more real to the situation surrounding Peter's direct audience, why should they submit to a world, to a people, who is getting ready to arm themselves to persecute Christians, who would definitely mistreat them, who would slander them, 
miscategorize them? No. These are, of course, not just questions for Jesus' disciples, not just questions for Peter's audience, but for us who might be struggling with these issues. We, we don't understand why God has placed us in the position and place that he has placed us. If God is so beautiful, so wonderful, then what is the meaning of these exhortations that we see in verses 13 and onward? And so the answer to this question lies to our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and what purpose Christians have in the public sphere today. Peter's answer is not what we expect. He says we need to submit and endure for the sake of the gospel. So today we're going to try and answer three questions, three main questions that this text is addressing. Uh, One, uh, why should we submit to authorities? Why should we submit to authorities? Two, uh, why should we suffer to authorities? And three, why did Christ submit and suffer? We'll answer those three questions. So let's start with the first. Why should we submit to authorities? Why, as Peter is saying here in this first verse, for the Lord's sake be subject to every human institution? Uh, This seems like a radical thing on the surface level to accept for us, especially as uh, Western individual Americans. Uh, The Gallup poll, I don't know if you saw this one uh, that, that came out, recently did a study on trust in human institutions. And as you can expect, uh, trust in our human institutions are at an all-time low in this country. And it's quite easy to see why. Um, We see institutions that are made up of fallen people uh, who do fallen things. And it causes this breach of trust uh, to us. Uh, Living in America, we have a natural distrust of institutions. Uh, The very founding of our country was based upon revolution. Anti-authoritarianism is a positive term in the minds of many. You know, this idea that we need to resist all authority. It means, if we're, we're doing this properly, that we are not brainwashed by the propaganda of our systems. Uh, that we are enabled to challenge and call accountability to all that is wrong. So, in other words, uh, some distrust in our institutions is not necessarily a horrible thing. But to read 1 Peter chapter 2 in the lens of our current American understanding of authority, um, it it would be completely wrong, right? Uh, You have to remember, in the time of Peter's letter, Christianity was not the majority, but the marginalized of marginalized people in society. They held absolutely no political, social, or economic power or control to change anything in the culture and world around them. In fact, the general consensus around Christians during this period of time was that they were the fringe of fringe groups, which is why uh, later on, after 1 Peter, the Emperor Nero thought he could get away blaming Christians for the burning of Rome. If you're in political power, you blame it on the marginalized people. That's what you do. They were rejected, slandered, and mischaracterized at every turn. Suffering, in other words, is an inevitability for those who confess Jesus as Lord. They would face many trials. Life would be not just hard, but almost impossible at times. And there was no outlook on their lives that would seemingly change those circumstances. So Peter, uh, in our text from last week, exhorted them that the remedy to ongoing persecution that would await them is to live honorably amongst the Gentiles around them. 
that the way that they do this in, in, in our text today is not, not to gain political, social, or economic control. It is not to overthrow the Roman Empire. They, they would never be able to even try to attempt to do that given the relative size of the church. It is not to mobilize this military might. Rather, shockingly, surprisingly, Peter's saying, live amongst the empire. Submit yourselves to the emperors and governors by doing good to them. Now, in this, what is Peter acknowledging? Yes, the system is bent and slated against you. Yes, its laws and statutes will cause you to suffer. Uh, but nevertheless, we must find, as these verses say, in these opening verses say, we must find the good within it. Not just to survive, but to display Christ in a world need of change. So Peter, in these opening verses, is saying something that we need to hear today. Even in the most corrupt, in the most unjust institutions that exist in the world today, there is a capacity for good that must be recognized and not abandoned. There is some semblance in institutions of a common grace that is in line with the justice and goodness of God. And when and where they get them right, we should seek to submit to those procedures and ways that are set before us, even if the overarching system is not friendly towards Christians. That word for institution in verse 13 in the original language is woodenly translated to the word creature, creature. So, in other words, be subject to every human creature. And that gives us a, a bigger understanding of the kind of dignity that Peter is trying to draw out here. Peter is saying that these institutions are made up of people who are made in God's image, who reflect the values of God, both in punishing and evil and doing good. When they do this in line with God's word, we should commend these things and submit to them as they stand rightly with the word of God. But there's more than just sort of this mere purpose of commending what is good. Uh, Peter is saying that through this measure, Christians can actually do good in the public sphere that has an effect. And this effect is silencing those who are ignorant of Christianity. This, Peter is saying, is the will of God. Now, what is the doing good that Peter is speaking of? Um, this phrase, doing good, in 1 Peter shows up quite a bit in this letter. In fact, six times uh, by the account of some scholars, uh, each of them implying that doing good is more than just living an ethical, moral life. The doing good measured here is clearly that these works that Christians are doing are in the presence of non-Christians, governing authorities, the presence of quote-unquote pagans that serves as a witness to their identity as Christians. In other words, Christians might live underneath this authority and power who resists them that their circumstances may never change, but by their good works done to non-Christians and their witness, the hearts of those that oppose them begin to turn. You see what Peter is saying here? The way that you change the world is not through anarchy. It's not through military rebellion towards the state. It's through seeking its goodness through good works. Peter is echoing uh, this very famous Old Testament passage in Jeremiah. When Israel was sent into exile, living on the margins of Babylon, 
They were told in Jeremiah to seek the welfare of Babylon. Why? They were commanded by the prophet Jeremiah, for in its welfare they will have welfare. Which is an astonishing statement when you think about what Babylon was. It was this oppressive, unjust, hostile nation towards the Israelites. They would literally take the Israelite children and smash their heads against rocks. And yet God's command here is to submit to these authorities and even commend them for good is not saying that we endorse Babylon. It's not saying by doing good to Babylon that we agree with everything that Babylon is saying, but rather that they are being a witness even to those who would oppose God and his people. Uh, This should be a very helpful need and corrective for us who often take a very binary approach to the world around us. Anyone who agrees with me is good. Anyone who disagrees with me is evil and incapable of good. Uh, That is not a Christian statement. See, through the state and its laws, I'm sorry, though the state and its laws held Christians in the worst of social, political, and religious positions, Peter writes that they are actually freer than they could ever imagine in this system. He says that you are free. Why? Because they belong to a different kind of people. They are part of God's family. They are protected and kept by him, not in this temporal life, but the eternal one to come. And in saying this, um, by the way, just as a caveat here, Peter is not denying that Christians should seek ways in society where they can change unlawful things when they have the ability to do so. When they have the ability to do so. Uh, Do you remember Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16? Uh, They were wrongly beaten in Philippi, and so Paul demands an apology from the authorities. Why? Uh, Because it was their legal recourse to be able to do so. So, so Peter is not saying uh, that you should never ever resist. When Christians are able, they can and should speak out against injustice and those very things that would disrupt, disrupt the cause of justice for the Lord's sake. Uh, there are moments where Christians are called to disobey because it would mean that they would have to confess something other than Jesus is Lord. But nevertheless, in doing good, in Peter's language, in subjecting yourself to the authorities, we can say, yes, there may be secular institutions that may be advancing things that ultimately, overarchingly, would be harmful to Christians, but we can submit as a witness and a testimony to God's grace working in them. Uh, One can think of Peter's own mentality, of his mindset changing on this very issue. Uh, Do you remember Peter's life in the gospel? Uh, One time Peter was ready to take the sword and resist the suffering that Christ was to bear. He even chopped off someone's ear to do it. He thought perhaps it was his job as Jesus' disciple, and so Jesus needed him to protect him from the governmental authorities of the world. Peter's heart in First Peter realized that he has, his heart has radically changed. No longer is a military revolution needed. Christ has defeated sin and conquered the grave. So Christ needed Peter's sword to begin with. He could have sent his own army of angels to defend them, but instead, what does Christ do? He submits to the governing authorities. Peter's heart realizes that these weapons of how we deal with our current culture are not made of steel and metal. Our warfare looks a lot like faith, hope, and love. 
that gives us an opportunity to witness to a skeptical world that will slander us. They are free, as Peter says, but not a freedom uh, that is to stand arrogantly above the world, but rather to honor everyone. Look at these verses. To love the brotherhood or the church, uh, but be in awe of God and fear of him and honor the emperor. See, the Christian witness is about engaging the public sphere in such a way that your life is a testimony of the grace that you've received through Jesus Christ. Do you remember um, at the cross what the Roman centurion said in witnessing this Christ submit to capital punishment that was unjustly applied to him? What witness did this suffering and in submitting to this punishment lead? The very man that was in charge of Jesus' death and criminal execution now declares how ignorant of Jesus he really was. He says, surely this man was the Son of God. It is sometimes only when we subject ourselves uh, to the authorities in doing good, in honoring those institutions above us, despite the injustices, despite the radical pain that is caused by them, can our witness of Christ be made clear in such a profound way that people cannot deny who Jesus is. And that's what leads us to our second question here today. All right, I might buy the premise of why we can submit, but then why should we suffer to unjust authorities? Uh, Peter then moves from the broad application of submission to institutions that are set before him to two very specific examples of how this is supposed to look in a fallen world. We're going to cover one of these this week. And he does this by highlighting two different people group that would have been seen as unknown and undeserving of even ink on a page of the secular culture around them, slaves and wives both of which in Roman society did not hold any elevated or acclaimed status at all. And so in this, what is Peter doing? In this, uh, he's echoing the New Testament writers. Uh, Peter and Paul highlight groups of people and gives them a voice that would have otherwise remained completely and totally unheard. So here's the gospel implication that Peter has, even in just mentioning slaves and servants here in this text, uh, knowing Christ and his journey means that we as God's people will elevate those who have no place in the secular world and bestow upon them dignity and value. We'll take a look at slaves this week and examine how Peter is taking this idea of suffering to authorities. And, and we got to talk about what this means and what this doesn't mean. So first, we need to properly define uh, the slaves that Peter is mentioning here. Uh, this is both unlike slavery as we might imagine. Um, you know, when we think of the word slavery as Americans, we think of the, you know, the horrific chattel slavery that remains, you know, one of America's greatest sins in our history, right? Uh, Roman slavery was a very broad and wide term that represented, in most cases, what we would uh, say today is like the middle class. Uh, slaves in the Roman Empire could have been doctors, uh, teachers, uh, managers, musicians, artisans. Uh, they could have owned property and even be in charge of other slaves. Uh, they were highly educated. It was not uncommon for slaves to be more highly educated than their masters in the Roman Empire. Uh, so, and, and slavery wasn't based upon any sort of racial component. Uh, anyone could be a slave. Anyone could, could voluntarily give themselves into slavery if they owed uh, particular debts. Uh, so in many ways, this is very dis 
continuous from the way that we think about American slavery. But however, it would be wrong to suggest that slavery in the Greco-Roman world wasn't without some kind of similarities to the slavery that we recognize. Uh, Slaves in Rome still could suffer brutal mistreatment from their owners. Uh, Children could be born into slavery and have no recourse out of it. Uh, They had no legal rights as slaves. Uh, They could be physically abused. And the particular slaves that Peter here is addressing, that word for slaves or servants, is actually household slaves. Uh, Ones who are on the forefront of this kind of mistreatment. So even though there are better lifestyles for slaves in the Roman Empire versus the American slavery, they are nevertheless still slaves, subjugated to a dehumanizing lesser status and dignity of life. So Peter addressing these household servants is used specifically to give Christians uh, who, are, who are trying to understand how to live an example of how submitting to institutions means that we must also be prepared to suffer. Peter says this kind of submission to suffering, not just to good masters, but even to those who are bad, um, is, is surprising. Why? Why, why, would he, why would he say this? On the surface level, it could appear that Peter was somehow supporting the system of slavery that is present here, but that is the furthest thing from the truth that Peter is presenting. Rather, Peter is bent here is recognizing a class of people that would have no way to change their current set of circumstances. The system of slavery was baked in to the Greco-Roman Empire. It was not going to change There were no laws that would would ever have affected this. Uh, They, from the Roman Empire standpoint, were destined to live in this kind of mistreatment. There could be no political policy overthrow. They had scarce resources and nothing that they could do to change the culture. They would, uh, barring from Jesus coming back to free them, be destined to live this lifestyle all the days of their life. Peter addresses the horror of their plight by giving them hope in the midst of their suffering. Uh, we are reminded that the New Testament does not endorse slavery or its practice at all. And so what kind of hope is Peter presenting here? How could anyone have hope enduring this kind of thing? What, what grace could possibly be pre- present here? Um, that they go through these sufferings not as an endorsement of the system of slavery or how they are as a person. Rather, they endure it because, why? They're following in the footsteps of their Savior and that God sees them in their pain and he gives them grace to bear it. Peter says, even when you think no one sees how you are suffering, even when you find that your suffering is hopeless, even when you find that there's, 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 there's no end goal to all of this, Peter's saying, God sees you. God's giving life to you in the midst of it. And this is what Christ went through. The paradox of the Christian life is therefore this, that often the grace that Jesus is giving us in our lives comes in the form of suffering that we must endure. Now, we often don't associate grace with this, but it's a grace that points to something powerful that otherwise could never be in our life without it. 
See, whereas Peter's audience here could not see themselves as anything but outsiders, Gentile Christians living in, invisible in the world around them, suffering unjustly under ungodly masters and ungodly authorities, uh, what kind of self-worth could one gain from this situation? What kind of dignity would you give yourself? Peter's saying, hold on. Before you think that there's nothing to live for, that everyone else around you has taken everything away from you, there is greater meaning behind all of this. And so you can endure. God sees you. By enduring, you are receiving a grace that otherwise could not have been understood. There is a reason to hope beyond the horror. There is no need for self-hatred in your circumstances to give up and lose heart as who you are in your identity of Christ. There is grace amidst the darkness. Many of you might be familiar with the story of Rachel Denhollander. Um, she was a survivor of abuse from the USA gymnastic team trainer Larry Nasser when she was a teenager. Uh, Larry Nasser, as some of you might be familiar with, uh, took advantage of over 200 young girls while in a position of authority as a team doctor for the National USA Olympic team. Rachel suffered alone for many years. She pondered the question of where grace could be found in such a horrific situation and circumstances. It was a system of ungodly care that she, as a young teenager, held no power to be able to change or overthrow in her position. The United States uh, Olympic national team at, at that time and its structures found a way to silence its victims and perpetuate its standing as the institution. But the Lord never left her. She grew up to become a lawyer. She was the first person to publicly accuse Larry Nasser and give justice to hundreds of girls that were forced to be subject to Larry's abuses. She rooted this all in this idea of enduring suffering in her Christian faith. In her book, What is a Girl Worth? Rachel ponders the question of self-hatred amongst facing unjust suffering. You see, victims often blame themselves for the choices in the life that, that they are experiencing rather than those who perpetuated abuse against them, uh, even when their suffering is not completely their fault. And so Rachel is writing this to demonstrate what, what it looks like to rid yourself of that. And she says this, The danger of lying to ourselves about who we really are or the things we've really done, no matter how small they seem in comparison to what others have done to us, is real. But see, that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. Uh, friends, I know that many of us are having a hard time finding meaning in our day-to-day -day grind. Our suffering seems unintelligible. It seems hopeless. Uh, you might even be blaming yourself here today for the position of life you find yourself in. And the Lord is speaking to us in this text today and saying that on the contrary, even in the worst and most evil of situations and systems, God is giving a grace that could not be seen apart from it in helping you to see Jesus, the suffering servant, in this place. And this is why Peter leads us back to the gospel message and truth itself. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called. This is, in other words, the purpose of all of this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So why? So that you might follow in his steps. And that's what leads us to the final question we want to answer here today. Uh, why 
did Jesus submit and suffer? We see in these last four verses of our text here today the culmination of Peter's encouragement that they are not alone and closer to God than they could ever realize. Christ, the the sinless, truth-telling Son of God, lives the life of suffering in the most perfect life that has ever been lived. So if you ponder and think about that, what does the perfect life actually entail? Suffering. Even submission to unjust authorities. Perfect integrity. The text here today says that he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. He was not reviling or responding when he was slandered against, not threatening others when he suffered. Rather, what does he do? He lays down his life. Why does he endure all of this? The text shares it here with us. He does it for you and for me. Bearing our sins on himself and all the suffering from the wrath of God that was placed upon the injustice of his punishment and he became sin so that we might become righteous in the Lord's sight. It was through the sufferings and the submission of Christ and only through his suffering and submissions that by his wounds we are healed. This is why Christ submitted himself to the torments of the cross. See, Christ isn't about self-preservation. Christ submitted and suffered because this was the only way in which grace could be given to us. A dignity that we could have never seen ourselves amidst the systems of our world. It gives us a purpose that actually gives us meaning that no circumstances can thwart. A grace that we can only find when we are in the midst of unimaginable pain. When we are in exile, this is when we will find Jesus because this is precisely where Jesus goes for us. You know, this is perhaps why the gospel grows most in areas where persecution is the heaviest. Uh, The most recent study done by Open Doors in uh, 2022 shows that 5,600 Christians were killed for their faith last year. 2,100 churches attacked or closed. Uh, 124,000 Christians forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith. 15 of those 124 are now refugees. Uh, One in seven Christians worldwide facing high levels of discrimination or persecution from governing authorities because of their faith. And yet, in those nations where persecution is the highest, uh, we see how the sufferings of these saints are promoting some of the largest growth in Christian witness that the world has ever seen or known. Uh, Do you know what the biggest threat is to these churches where persecution is the highest? Uh, It's not the outside governmental forces. It's not the violence that's being done against them. Rather, it's the isolation and loss of hope and purpose from the community within the church. In other words, the greatest danger to those suffering in exile is not the weapons of warfare that surround them. It's the lack of believing that Christ is there with them in the first place. And this is why Peter is exhorting the slaves here in this passage. He's saying, you need to hold on to hope. You need to know that there's no weapon to form against you that will stand. You need to know that Jesus has gone there with you and for you. Now, we in America have a tremendous privilege uh, as Christians and as citizens uh, of criticizing our governments, our institutions, our churches and leaders to hold them accountable. But imagine living 
in one of these persecution nations today. Imagine living in a culture and society where such recourse isn't possible. What hope do you have? Peter is saying, Christ is your hope. He not only knows where you are, he walks straight towards it to the cross. Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 that we just read about in the Old Testament. And this pathway of moving forward then is not social revolution of thwarting the Roman Empire or any iteration of it, but rather spiritual revolution that Christ has already won for us on the cross. Following Jesus will change the world far greater than the removal of unjust suffering or the changing of a law. Following Jesus in the face of unjust social systems will be a far more powerful means of witness of changing the world by giving us true hope even in unwinnable circumstances. How do we know this? The last verse tells us because the great shepherd has brought us back to himself. The one who looks directly at our pain, knows the nature of our souls, and himself suffers that we might be brought back to him. Scripture tells us that the great shepherd was struck down so that we might have life in his name. This is the power of the gospel, that in suffering we find hope, where hope can't be found. We find life. We find the healing power of Christ to see ourselves differently, to see our circumstances differently. Though our circumstances may not change, that we have a different perspective. So my prayer for you this morning is that you all, no matter who you subject yourselves to, no matter what suffering you're facing today, no matter what injustices you are enduring, that you do not see your position in life as hopeless. You don't look at yourself with self-hatred or blame. Rather, you take heart. You see the grace of Christ. Maybe today, even see Jesus more clearly than you ever have and the grace that he's giving to you in this moment right now. So let's pray together.